One, two, three. Gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna have a real good time together. We're gonna laugh the child together. Have a real good time together. Welcome back to Jokerman Podcast, podcast about Lou Reed. For the last time. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. Yeah, we've made it. We're officially kicking off our Lulu celebration. Uh, This is going to be our discussion of the album proper, but we do have two episodes, count them, one, two episodes beyond this. (laughs) One, two. Two. Uh, that's, uh, creating a triplicate of episodes of, of Lulu. That's right. On Jokerman. But while those are kind of extra special bonus disc material, this is just the straight episode. This is the big one. It, yeah. We're, it's what we've all been waiting for. We, you know, Lulu uh, is, a bi- is a big record. You may have heard, you may be aware. Uh, it's a record that, uh, you know, deserves to be unpacked in its full glory. And I feel like, you know, we, we love to have great guests on the program. And we do, believe me, have a couple of great guests coming up the rest of the week. Uh, look for those coming through on Patreon on Wednesday and Friday. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, when we, when we bring a, another fella or gal into the mix, it, uh, you know, you, you don't necessarily get that classic Jokerman flavor that we all know and uh you know tolerate if not love and we felt like that needed to be represented in the lulu conversation at the very least because oh lulu we've been we've been working up to i'm honestly a little amazed that we're here at this point i feel like we just got started with lou and john and here we are at the very end of it 44 studio records between the two of them another 10 live albums a bunch of bootleg episodes countdown things We've uh, we've done it up big with these two. Are you ready? I don't know. Are you? I don't know. I I feel I've been ready at various points in my life. There have been nights when it seemed like I was already doing the podcast after a few wow. drinks. I'm sure years ago. I mean, ever since it came out, there have been times sp- sporadically where I was moved to defend this record with my life. And uh, I've probably said everything that I can possibly say about it. You just haven't said it into the computer. Not yet. Not into the computer, not all at (laughs) once. And uh, I I hope I can live up to as as, uh, as spirited as I I have ever been. I'm sure I have been in the past talking about this. Well, that's a good, that's a good place to start. I think is, so you have been you have been a decided Lulu proselytizer, a Lulu advocate since the very beginning. It sounds like is that right? 
Not so fast. I, I okay. don't think that it was from the very beginning. I was never a hater of the album. Mm. I never said, this is awful. I think my general attitude was one of like, you see that? That's crazy, huh? Right. What do you make of that? Get a load of this. This Get this a load guy. of this. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of get a load of this-ism about this album. But after a certain amount of time, I just realized it wasn't going anywhere. And then Lou Reed <laughs> passes away, and then it's the last thing he ever did. And then I'm looking at it again. And it doesn't take much convincing after you approach it with any kind of openness to start to think about it in a way that wipes that smug smile off of your face, at least Mm -hmm. partly. Sure. I will say for my part, I had been uh, aware of the record, you know, in in its lead up to its, its dropping in, I think, late 2011 and aware of the online conversation and uh, the, the critical reception and I just kind of like put it out of my mind because I loved Lou at that point. I was a Velvets fan. I'd gotten into Transformer or whatever. And I was just like, you know, I really like this guy. This seems like it's going to be dog shit and a disaster. So I, would, I don't want to like just give myself a bad, you know, taste in my mouth. I, I can tell. I, I see everything I need to see just based on the critical reaction here. So I didn't even listen to it for the first however many months. And then summer 2012, I was like, I don't know, just smoking a bowl or something. And, and we were bored in the afternoon on a Tuesday. And someone decided, hey, let's put on Lulu and see what this is actually all about. Because we were really into, you know, loaded uh, at that moment in time. I was really getting into the deep cuts there. Uh, and so we put, we put on Brandenburg Gate. And, you know, you get, that first, you get that first minute or so, right, of, you know, acoustic guitar. And it's just Lou. And, you know, there's some interesting lyrics, which we'll get into shortly here. Uh, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like a sledge, like a sledgehammer, here comes, here comes Metallica, here comes James Hetfield, and j- me and my bros, we and just everyone started cracking up, laughing, just like tears streaming down our face, howling uh, with uh, with with uh, chuckles, and uh, and we turned it off and never listened to the rest of it. That was my entire experience with Lulu for several years, actually. Um, and I don't, I don't remember when exactly I came back to it. Honestly, it might not have been until we got started on our whole, you know, the, just Jokerman in general, you know, uh, with, with Bob, which I guess is almost four years ago at this point. Um, but, you know, starting to think about late era stuff, uh, and the entire span of someone's discography and Lou having been one of, one of my guys and someone that we knew from pretty early on was someone we were going to have to reckon with on this program at a certain point. So little by little, I started working my way back to Lulu and, uh, and trying, to, trying to find it for myself, trying to find me within it. And even those first couple steps didn't, they, they, were, <laughs> they were challenging, I would say. Um, and, but it's been, a, it's been a process of evolution. And, uh, and, and here today, at this point, I've been, I've been in the Lulu universe. I've been in 20th century Germany, you know, submerged there for the last month, six weeks or so. Uh, in the dojo every day, and uh, I'm I'm I don't want to spoil anything yet, but I, uh, I I'm feeling pretty feeling pretty amped about this record. It, it, it's just great to have something like this. Uh, like for me personally, honestly, I'm stoked that I had the the reception to it that I did when I was a dumbass twenty year old or whatever, because it has been such a rewarding process listening to the record and working at it and working through it. It's like breaking into King Tut's tomb or something. Like you didn't even know it was there. It was beneath your feet the entire time. And look at the look at the glory and splendor that has been waiting for you all along. 
yeah, it's a little bit like there's a pre and post of knowing what this record sounds like. <laughs> you hear the idea talked about and then you hear it. But I don't think either of us were Metallica no, heads. I still uh, am not a Metallica head, I, I will say. Uh, I don't have anything against Metallica. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm certainly a novice when it comes to their discography. We're not metal heads, period. Uh, we're indie rock hipsters. That's right. Uh, with our Starbucks and our skinny jeans and our beanies. Well, and now with our Maru coffee mm-hmm, and our mm-hmm. full leg trousers that's right wide leg 550 fit levi's there's a hipster way of viewing this record there's a plebeian man on the street way of viewing this record there's a metalhead way of viewing this record and i think we're post all of that i would like to think that we're post all of those uh yeah i don't i don't view it and i've gone through all of them i mean except for the metalhead one i'm i mean i am a plebe when it comes to metal so yeah i don't have the points of reference going in that many do. I have more now than I did when I first heard this. Um, something that dogged the record when it came out was that, that thing that we try to dispel on Jokerman of, is this up to the standard of the imaginary Lou Reed? Mm. And if you get familiar with his whole body of work, that goes out the window pretty fast. Yeah. And then getting any more familiarity with Metallica, uh, anything you think about them kind of goes out the window. I mean, I, I think that this is a record that is new territory for everyone involved, which kind of makes it something that demands the listener to open up a space of new territory in your own appreciation of it. If you don't respect the fact that this is challenging for the people making it, you're not going to be able to access it from the beginning. The conversation's over before it begins as far as your enjoyment. I think like that's that was lost on, I think, everyone. Right. There is, n- there is nothing else, and certainly in Lou's catalog or Metallica's catalog, that sounds like this, that is this, that feels like this record. And so if you are approaching it with any sort of preconceived notion or agenda or frame of reference lens through which you want to analyze it, you can do that, sure, and you can write your little fucking review and it'll show up on Metacritic and, uh, you know, be highlighted in red and, and, you know, take a shit on the record. But that's, ultimately, you're depriving yourself of something that you don't want to be deprived of, to be quite frank. I mean, I, I, we have listened to so many records on this show at this point and, you know, we, we have listened to a lot of these records just in our own lives and, and stuff, but we have listened seriously and thought about, you know, semi-seriously, semi I guess, so many different records from so many different artists, Mutineer, Inarticulate Speech of the Heart, Three Chords in the Truth, uh, A Shot of Love. Um, latest record project. Latest record, you know. Volume one. Yeah. But none of that really... It doesn't prepare you for this. It doesn't this. prepare you for this, exactly. It's just its own whole universe here. I will say, though, that while that's true in a general sense, both of these artists have things in their body of work leading up to it that are primers, like they set the ground for this. There are things that set it up, but like you have to recognize before you go into this record that the enjoyment comes in appreciating the drama of the attempt 
that was the thing that unlocked it for me several years ago now and continues to be impressive is that the attempt to put these ideas across is where you really see the nobility and power and ambition of what we have on Lulu. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, if, if you are, if you have done what we've done at this point and looked at each and every song that Lou has made all throughout his career, there's absolutely like a pre Lulu canon. Uh, I think blue mask is a great call. Obviously half of the shit on ecstasy from rock minuet to possum to mad, um, to Baton Rouge. I think that's all in here. Yeah. The entire Raven project is in here to some extent. Street uh, no. Hassle. Street Hassle is in here. Exactly. Huge Street Hassle I was listening to last night and I was just like, wow, this is not really different from Lulu. Yeah. Not very different at all. And people just give themselves away as being the most surface of tourists within the world of Lou Reed music when they shit on this record. Because like, if you can't get past the way that it sounds, you are just going to miss the obvious truth that there is more that connects it to his most popular work than not. Like, what do you have on Street Hassle? It's a narrative that's just like thrown in front of you with no real context, except for that suddenly you're in this very sordid, dire situation. For that matter, the whole record, almost 90% of it, goes back and forth between Venus and Furs and Femme Fatale. Yeah, I mean, that's all in there, obviously. Sister Ray is in here. The entire Berlin record is in here. Yeah, I, I think this, this album is uniquely well-suited to be listened to and thought about seriously. You know, anyone who wants to can just fucking put it on. Uh, but it's uniquely well-suited for this, this type of approach here, right? Like looking at each and every one of these steps all along the way and finding the DNA that's common from the very beginning that shows up here at the very end. Because Lulu does, you know, this is understood by everyone at this point, but it is, does bear, uh, it's worth repeating, it is Lou Reed's last record. This is, you know, the, the last set of songs that he ever composed and put out into the world. Um, at the same time, one thing that, I always, that, that I loved about Lou coming to him as a younger man uh, was that he was just fucking cool. He wears cool sunglasses. He wears cool leather jackets. He writes cool songs. He acts like a cool guy. He smokes cool cigarettes. Like, that's an irresistible part of the Lou Reed legend and legacy, to me at least. And coming to this record, you know, Metallica, to me, has never been a cool band, right? They've always been kind of like just someone else. You know, it's not my, not my thing. You know, you do your thing, man. Um, and so, uh, like, that approach to this record, which I absolutely had at the beginning, and which I feel like many people did, you know, when they were reviewing it, is just, it's, it's, it's destined to doom you when, when you're listening to this music, you, you know. And, and really, you know, it's, it's my mistake and anyone else's mistake for having that mindset in the first place. Like, the, the concept of trying to, like, say, oh, this, this 70-year-old guy isn't cool anymore. It's like, what, like, what are you talking about, dude? Yeah. Are you- <laughs> I mean, the cool thing about him is not an I don't give a fuck attitude. That's just like the elevator pitch talking point blurb that people throw out there. It, it came up when we talked to Lori Anderson. She f- said, you know, he, Lou didn't care. And then she quickly corrected herself and said, 
Well, actually, I, I don't even know why I'm saying that. It care, he cared a lot because <laughs> it's like so baked and we all have that. There's a tendency because we've heard it so many times to think of him that way. But as an artist and a communicator, I don't think he was immune to being uh, disappointed or hurt when the thing he was attempting was uh, not being received or appreciated. I think on that level, he was like anyone else who actually is serious about art. At this point, I believe what makes him cool is not what he didn't care about, but what he did care about. His his determination to be intense and honest. These are things that don't depend on whether or not he has a mullet or gated drums. The thing that has sustained him and his legacy is his ambition. What he didn't give a fuck about is what anybody thought about how he was going to follow that ambition. And yes, he he was the cool looking guy in sunglasses and a leather jacket, but. If that's your measure of what is cool about him, that is vapid. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the coolness aspect of it, it's, it doesn't even make sense to try to think of it along those lines here. This is just, this is, this, is, this is Lou Reed, final boss level, operating at the absolute peak of his powers. Well, beyond the peak of his powers, really. I mean, I think the peak of his powers is ecstasy, where he's able to do what he's always done, but he has no, I mean, even before that with uh, Set the Twilight Reeling, in the midst of the song NYC, uh, New York City Man, he has this passage about the clock full of butterflies and uh, it releases a thousand moths and the white jeweled horse. And there's this shift of like realism, the gritty realism that everybody knows and loves him for falling away and and he integrates seamlessly that same thing you know into uh, songs that also are equally accommodating to surrealism and symbolism and i think earlier in his career it was kind of more demarcated like a song wouldn't have both those things mm. but by the end Songs can have both those things. Ecstasy is a song that has both those, like so many songs on that record have all of those things just popping up whenever the need strikes. Not even the mood, but the need to put together truthful songs as he sees them. And that gritty street level realness, I think by the time Lulu comes around, the major shift that has happened is that Lou Reed recognizes that when you're writing songs about life and death and the, the most serious emotional stakes, realism does not always cut it. Like at this point, he's willing to go anywhere at any moment to get to the heart of what he's trying to say. Yes, that, that means he is going to have Metallica as the backing band if that's how he feels it needs to be done. Like he wants to amplify and heighten in any way he can. Yeah, it is the fusion, I think. It really is the fucking apotheosis of of everything here. Because I, I do think it's worth noting, right, or, or mentioning that, you know, Lulu, the record kind of evolves out of his collaboration with Robert Wilson, which was ongoing at this time, 20 years old at this time. 
uh, give or take. Uh, and, you know, that, that fascination he had with uh, drama, right? Just literally a stage performance, you know, drama in like the Greek sense uh, by the end of it, writing songs for these uh, esoteric, barely ever even seen or performed uh, uh, musicals or, or, or stage plays or whatever. Um, that's what Lulu evolves out of. Obviously, you know, the record is inspired by Vatican's Lulu plays from the 1890s, early 1900s. These shocking, bracing moments of modernism, like just like inserting themselves into the, the you know, the old guard of, of you know, pre-war Germany, pre-World War I Germany. And ecstasy, I think, I, I'm guessing the boat, like the two of us can probably agree at this point, we're, we're going to do our Lou 100, you know, uh, part of the song countdown shortly after this episode runs. Um, but ecstasy, I think, is probably Lou's best record. I think we can both probably agree at that, uh, on this at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but ecstasy is still very much a, a record, right? A, a rock record. Um, and there are rock songs stretched to their absolute limit. See Possum. Um, but they are still rock songs at the end of the day. And, and Lulu, I think, is really kind of an extraordinary fusion of drama, performance, Robert Wilson. Like, that's all in here, too. Everything the man, had, I think, had ever been interested in shows up in Lulu one way or another. Obviously, it would have been great for Lou to go on living, still be living today and touring like Bob and John or whatever. But if, if we had to pick like a single statement for him to go out on, for him to conclude the whole story, the whole song of Lou Reed, I can't think of anything more appropriate. Should we talk about it? Should we about talk it? about it? <laughs> Did you cut your legs and tits off today? Well, we're right about to. <laughs> okay, so now you're thinking of, of Boris Karloff. And Kinski. <laughs> Kinski. What a way to start a record. Well, right at the beginning, <laughs> Boris Karloff and Kinski. Uh, within the first 30 seconds, all time and space has been collapsed by saying Boris Karloff and Kinski. <laughs> you might know uh, everything there is to know about the idea of Lulu. You might have seen the Robert Wilson uh, play was being put on and, and heard about and even read all of the Lulu plays by Frank Vatican. And nothing could have prepared you for that because it's already out of the gate just telling you that, yeah, it's like a period piece, but that doesn't mean that we're making everything referential to <laughs> the period. In the same way that Bob Dylan's Murder Most Foul is not about the 1960s. Right, exactly. It's about that time period, but he's not going to limit himself. That's what we learn right from out of the gate. The way to describe the essence of that period in which these uh, that play takes place, uh, that's not going to be a rigorously studied period text palette. It's going to be from anything and everything that can suggest the feeling about it. It is a difficult record to read line by line. There's a lot of words. Uh, we could just start there. <laughs> this is a dense record. It is just packed, packed, packed. And it isn't clear, to me at least, on a line by line basis, who is speaking to us. Is it Lou Reed? Is it Lulu herself? Is it some combination of the two of them? Is it someone else entirely? And so when, when this record starts off with 
70-year-old Lou Reed stating plainly, I would cut my legs and tits off when I think of Boris Karloff and Kinski. In the dark of the moon, it made me dream of Nosferatu. Trapped on the Isle of Dr. Moreau. Moreau. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely? I would cut my legs and tits off when I think of Boris Karloff and Kinski in the dark of the moon. It made me dream of Nosferatu, trapped on the Isle of Dr. Moreau. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely? Wouldn't it be lovely? Reference to the song from My Fair Lady. Also, Wouldn't It Be Lovely appears in a song called Like a Possum. Oh, yeah. He throws that out. I mean, that we were just talking about proto Lulu stuff. That is as proto Lulu uh, exhibit A as you can get. Wouldn't It Be Lovely appearing in Like a Possum and in Brandenburg Gate. Uh, what we can talk about as far as what narrator we're dealing with, Luri doesn't have tits. Mm. That's one thing I know about him. Interesting. <laughs> An indication that uh, this is from the point of view of the Lulu character. I, I think we should talk a little bit about what the Lulu plays are, but I don't want to get too into the weeds about that because this record, unlike the play, doesn't give you those things. And I think the way that we've always approached talking about records to me, which is, um, I think, beautiful in terms of uh, being forgiving for us uh, as far as rigorous uh, study (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just being lazy. Lazy, perhaps. (laughs) What I'm getting to is that it's also just, what does this record give you? Like, if you're the one who buys the record, what does it give you? Right there. Right, right. Without having to have done your own research and rigorous exploration of all of the shit that went into making this record. That, that makes sense. That is, I think, something of our approach that uh, in this case is very uh, important because this isn't the, the play. There isn't like interstitial dialogue. You don't need to know about the plays, which are by German playwright Frank Vatican and are about a woman who falls from grace, uh, well, maybe not even from too high of a height, but goes down yeah, to... Goes up and down. But goes very far down in terms of uh, being subjected to all manner of abuse and also, importantly, uh, kind of ending up making others suffer, too. Yes. Lou Reed's albums and his lyrical fixations have always been interested in the experience of women. He thinks they're great. Yes. <laughs> and this record, I think, is a, a, an attempt to cut away everything and get down to the, what is this battle between the sexes about? 
you could talk about the intricacies of the plot of the Frank Vatican plays, but what comes out to me about what those plays are suggesting is it's about the feminine and masculine both having this kind of aspiration that contradicts the other. The feminine wanting to be powerful and domineering, and the masculine wanting to be sensitive and soft. The power dynamics between the two things being fundamentally in some way imbalanced, incompatible. And I I think that's all I'll say about it, but a lot of the lyrics, if not all, seem to revolve around this imbalance. And you don't know if it's a man or a woman singing at any given moment, but that's part of the story here. Learning a little bit about what this all kind of came from deepened my appreciation of the record. So you don't need to, by any means, you can absolutely just confront this on its face and and take it for what it is. But if you're interested in it, it, I think, can be helpful. The keyhole, the glimpse into the source material that I have based on, you know, a couple hours of Googling or whatever. Set all that aside. What is this? What is this song? Small Town Girl. It's this is one of the closest things to a, a pop song, like rock song, whatever you want to call it on this record. Yeah, there's like two of those. Yeah, exactly. It's this and there's one more that will get a couple, you know, slots down the line here. It's a it's a gentle segue into the world of Lulu, I guess I would say, as gentle as you're going to get on this album. Um, which again, like we said, begins with that immortal verse from Lou over just an acoustic guitar from Kirk Hammett. And, and then, then uh Bang. Bang. Here's Metallica, here's James Hetfield, small town girl, the whole band lands like an asteroid. It's a bracing sound. There's no getting around it. Like, you are going to be... Rocked. <laughs> your eyes are going to bug out of your fucking head the first time you hear this. But perfect as the opener for this. Absolutely. It really is a soaring statement. The way that the lyrics deal with really intimate and mundane things, while also going full force with with regard to like the sonics, it's a sensual song, and it introduces the idea that this is a, a record about sensuality and about the violence of sensuality. That is what I have taken away from it lately. Like listening to it today, it's never sounded better to me. It's just so 
uplifting and there's a just a deep serious yearning in this song that imbues the small things like about I was napping and drinking absinthe and glimpses at day-to-day life of the period with the sense of scope and grandeur that maybe the characters don't know is going to be as grand and torturous as it's about to be. The yearning in it, I'm just a small town girl, I want to give life a whirl. It's hard not to think about small town. Exactly. The- Another uh, scene setting album opener. There's only one good thing about a small town. There's only one good use for a small town. There's only one good thing about a small town. You know that you want to get out. When you're growing up in a small town, you know you'll grow down in a small town. There's only one good use for a small town. You hate it, and you know you'll have to leave. If we want to talk about the reference to the small town lyric of Drella, which also note Drella and Lulu, both nicknames from the same period, where Drella was the nickname for Warhol, Dracula, Cinderella, Portmanteau, and Lulu was Drella's nickname for Lou. Lou's nickname. We're already working in that vernacular, and I think that Lou recognizes he relates to this character, but we can also relate that character to Warhol, for example, who at the beginning of that record is just stepping out of the small town. And the rest of that record deals with the extremely heavy consequences of putting himself into the world. Lou himself embodying the small town girl going to give this a whirl, like the most casual framing of I'm going to give it a shot. I want to see what the world is about. And the rest of the record is the consequences of that. There is the idea of it, the first track being about the gate, the opening up, uh, crossing a threshold moment, and stepping into the world. The violence of this act, this opening up of sexuality and being or presence will be the ruin of many men and of herself. Herself, yeah. The way that it's downplayed while also sounding so fittingly momentous really makes the song work as as an opener for this piece. This is what I was saying at the beginning in our endless prologue is like, 
this is what makes this whole thing worth going through the whole journey with Lou, starting at the beginning and checking in with him every step of the way. Like, it, like if you're just whatever fucking schmo who's writing a, a review of this record in 2011 and you've heard Transformer and Street Hassle a couple times, and this is the only other Lou Reed record you've ever heard, it's like, you know, it's just, it's over your, over your fucking head. Um, the view. I'm the table. <laughs> I'm the table. <laughs> I love that. That's a meme. That's like a meme in the Metallica community, which I wasn't even aware of going into all of this. Oh yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> well, the I'm the table thing is. You know, it was the first single. So okay, the people uh, who heard this had zero chance of contextualizing it. Very important to note. That's why it became a meme. Like. <laughs> There is no way that you could know what you could expect anybody reasonably to to make sense of that. But uh, later in the record, there's a reference to a table that you put your feet on. The, the idea of this thing being a servile instrument or an object, right? Like a like a, a, a sub, like a sub type of thing. Yeah, but like to take to the extreme, like that is part of the vernacular of this record. Very much, you know, references S and M, and it's conjecture on my part, but I think there's reason to understand it that way. I don't know if this song is about or from the perspective of a man or a woman, from Lulu or from the people seeing Lulu for the first time, but I want to say it's both. And I think that the title suggests that she's entered in Brandenburg gate and then she's seen in the view. And maybe it is more the view of Lulu and the, the violence of desire and of recognition of like, I will do anything for this person. I'll make my, I'll go crawling down the Avenue etc. Yeah, I, I think this is the first clear example. I mean, you already get this on, on Brandenburg Gate, but I, I think this is a more straightforward example or more legible example of the, the way that Lou uses Hetfield's vocals here as this like almost Greek chorus type of thing, or, or, or they're, they're maybe not Greek chorus, but they're, they're, they're playing different parts here. They're, they're these two very distinct presences, very distinct voices uh, that that are counterposed against one another. I think in a very deliberate manner. <laughs> Whether or not you like the way it sounds, you know that's that's your problem. But it, you know the 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 way that Lou uses Hetfield here as his 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 counterpoint, I think, is very much part of what's going on here. Yeah. Well, it makes you wonder if who's the man, who's the woman. You have lines like, "I worship the young and just formed angel who sits upon the pin of lust." everything else bores me and then i want to see your suicide i want to see you give it up for worship of someone who actively despises you like just zero to 1000 miles per hour yeah you're you're in it now by <laughs> by the time you hit the view i think this one the the, the lyrics right the, the parts that are being played here come pretty directly from the actual the actual plays here it's it's maybe worth noting just as as a bit of context or additional information that lulu the first play earth spirit she's kind of <laughs> she goes through a whole series of relationships with different types of fellas there in mm-hmm. uh, germany 
Uh, and at, at one point towards the end, there's this patron character, as I understand it, at least Dr. Shone, Shona something, um, who he's like her lover initially at the beginning, and then he sort of pimps her out to other people, uh, to other guys, and then she ends up getting back with him later, and then ultimately they get married, and she continues kind of sleeping around on him, at which point he tries to get her to kill herself. Like he, he, like there's a the whole like scene from what I understand of him trying to like convince her to commit suicide basically. And then it, you know, instead she, like he gives her a gun and then instead of her killing herself, she just shoots him. Um, so, so I, I want to see your suicide. I want to see you give it up your life of reason. I want you on the floor and in a coffin, your soul shaking. <laughs> that seems like a pretty direct link to that specific character and that specific scene. But then you have the retort, which might be her with I am the root, I am the progress, I'm the aggressor. Exactly. That's that's what I was saying, right? Is the two of them kind of in dialogue, you know, if you if you want to just approach this as like a dramatic scene here, for what it's worth, just throwing a genius annotation at you. The table line is referring to the the table the Last Supper was was eaten on, right? Which I think actually I can see that because there's earlier lines here that are I am the root, I'm the progress, I'm the tablet. These ten stories, right? The ten commandments on the tablets given to you from Mount Sinai. Possible. So you know, <laughs> just yes, James Hetfield screaming into a microphone, "I'm the table." It's goofy, but if you if you want to try to place it within context and understand that. He's saying these words for a reason, and there is somewhere that they're coming from. You know, there, there's, there's a lot more behind the scenes. The fact that it is operating on a really ambitious poetic mode, that's not going to be uh, something that we can expect any music fan, you know, whether they're a metalhead or not, to immediately accept. It is something that doesn't give anyone from any audience any sort of hand-holding here. There's no tutorial level to Lulu, some easy way to enjoy this or any effort to, like, make this palatable or, or uh, uh, enjoy, <laughs> enjoyable even for, for people who might have followed any of the, either of these individual artists up to this point. And that's what's so brave about it, so, so ultimately rewarding about it, is meeting them on their level at, like, where they were at at this moment in time, where Lou really was at, because he was the lyricist here. Well, that's where we need to, I think, if I, you know, what's the point of us talking about this? It's to try to help people to appreciate it. I think to me, something that helped me appreciate it over time 
was recognizing that that's the case, and then kind of coming to an understanding that the reason why it's the way it is is because he's coming to this as a poet. And when he's talking about this stuff, he's talking about it from a very elemental perspective. Like the things that he's talking about, they don't reference anything but life itself. So to understand this lyricism, you have to scrape away a lot. You actually, it's more simple, more direct than you think going in. And so these lyrics are really directly about the stuff people don't want to think about. Like they are about the deep rooted anxiety of not being enough or wanting something you can't have when it comes to like a partner, uh, wanting things based on, on sexual desire. There's just this id level mode that this record operates on that like, if you don't get it by the time this song ends, you're not going to get it. But it's asking you to get serious about what's being put in front of you. Shit or get off the pot. Get off the table. Who <laughs> <laughs> actively despises you. I am the view. I am the table. I am the view. I am the table. I am all this. I am the root. The progress. The aggressor. funniest thing to me is that when he says worship he still keeps like the ccr <laughs> like the worship worship <laughs> like the uh. blues pronunciation it's brave that this was the first single too because honestly brandon Burkade would have been like the smarter a, a, and single. even better first single coming up i saw it exactly yeah that's the that's the bang, that's the pop song here that's the that's the billboard top 100 hit <laughs> if that was the first thing people had heard this record would have gotten a two out of ten. On right. Worship. <laughs> the view is is when you figure out whether this is your shit or not. I think it is the event horizon beyond which you're just sucked into the black hole of Lulu, which, you know, at this point I'm, you're sucked. I'm in there, man. I'm, I'm, I'm twirling <laughs> around space time and just sucked down into the deep, dark depths of eternity. Yeah. The, the vagina dentata of this oh, record. Man, it's crazy. Um, pumping, pumping blood, blood. Do, 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 okay. Do, can we just do. address banger? How banger. good the, the music is this is a criticism i hear of the record all the time i've watched and listened to many reviews leading up to this because i wanted to get a sense of really what people were thinking still think of it and one thing i hear again and again and we'll hear later when we talk to somebody who still doesn't like the record uh, on a future episode 
has come around that, on it a little the, bit, but you know. Uh, okay, sure. not yeah. enough. The that the music and the lyric vocalization does not match or it doesn't feel connected to itself. Like it seems like two different things that just don't have connective tissue. The just pumping blood like that riff badass absolutely chained to the phrasing of that lyric i'll just say right now a big knock against that criticism of like sounds like metallica in one room and lou in another they sound totally joined here I think Pumping Blood is a perfect kind of synthesis of of the two of them working together in, you know, absolute unison as far as I'm concerned. Uh, would, would, you, would you indulge me in just a couple quotes from some of our friends in the online commentary at circa 2011 regarding uh, <laughs> Pumping Blood? If we must. Uh, I just couldn't help myself. I was looking at uh, Metacritic, you know, reviewing all the the deep, dark, dog shit reviews of this record, which really just read like the central casting stock epic online takedown bullshit that, you know, was out of style by 2006. And this was 2011 when it was getting written in the first place. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is telling you the the levels on which these people were operating. Right, so, so regarding Pumping Blood, for instance, the Boston Globe, with its phallic daggers and gallons of blood, Pumping Blood, the song is cheap, creepy porn, not literate rock mm-hmm. poetry. <laughs> I agree with the first part, but not the second part. Uh, and our friends at uh, Consequence of Sound, I forget who even wrote this, state the most egregious stretches of the album come when Reed is at his most verbose stumbling around a melody for minutes at a time, spouting off psychosexual lyrics about Vatican's story above tedious and boilerplate Metallica riffs. The gears grind loudest on Pumping Blood and Dragon, we'll come back to Dragon, Hmm. which simply cannot be tolerated more than once. I don't understand, like, I I don't, I I understand not liking this record. It totally makes sense. I, 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 would not be mad at anyone for saying, you know, this is just not my shit. This is not for me. But for someone to like say, like, you just, you can't tolerate listening to one of these songs more than once. And not just anyone saying that, but a professional music critic. Does it like, I just, I, I you know, I, I think that that speaks to like the, the cultural context into which this album was released, which it, it might've come out at the worst possible moment that it, you know, ever could have. But there's this, 
there's there's this degree of performativity to the whole thing, you know, like the whole like, oh, I fucking hate Nickelback type shit from 2008 or whatever, where people are just like competing against themselves to come up with the lamest, hardest cutting, you know, quote unquote, hardest cutting insult they can possibly throw at this record. Both those criticisms are I feel like so close. It's like when you read a political take that's like just on the cusp of understanding what's actually going on. There's a puritanism to it. It's like, why? That absolutely. Yeah. There there was another review, uh, uh, not to to get too bogged down in this, but this was one of my favorites from earlier in Consequence of Sound, actually. Um, They called it icky. (laughs) Not wrong. (laughs) These stretches of obtuse and icky lyricism eventually become at best a wash of caustic anger, and at worst, hilarious. It's icky. Lulu is icky to me. It is icky. It is, a, a, whatever they say, a vortex of phallic daggers. <laughs> like, that is what we have here. But that's what you're dealt. That's right, brother. That's what, that's what you bought in for. Why is it there? Like, clearly it's not to be on the radio. The seven minute and 24 second song, Pumping Blood on Lulu, is not trying to be anything but what it is a piece of a record that is a narrative and a, a a sequence that tells you a story. It's the sex scene. Like we've got the (laughs) introduction. We have the moment before and then pumping blood, you know, the song where Lulu gets murdered is the sex scene. I love it. Does she get murdered? Is she, I I don't know if, I mean, in the play, she gets murdered by By Jack Jack the Ripper. Ripper. Uh, Oh, Jack, I beseech you. Supreme violation. Blood in the foyer, the bathroom, the tea room, the kitchen with her knives splayed. I will swallow your sharpest cutter like a colored man's dick. (laughs) Well, yes, but it happens at the third song, so it couldn't literally be. Well, I mean, if it is, it's... it's that's what's interesting about a, this. An example of non-linear storytelling. Right. I think I think that like if if we're just looking at the the Lulu plays based on what we have there in the scripts, right on the stage from a century prior, like Lou's Lou is done with all of them by the third song here, right? He's he's gone from beginning to end, and there's still an hour plus of this record left to go. Um, and so you know, there there's so much more I think going on with this record, and so much more personal exploration and interrogation of himself literally Lou Reed in this record I think than people might have interpreted initially you know we'll get to this later but if you're just going based on you know scene by scene all the way through this this seems like the Jack the Ripper murder scene which comes at the very end of the second of the two Lulu plays right in the foyer of the bathroom the tea room the kitchen and knives played I swallowed your shop is cut like a colored man's dick blood spurting from me Two and then three, you're at the most extreme vision of sex as murder and vice versa. That is what connects it to something like Street Hassle as much as anything else. You know, a record that is sex and death uh, completely mixed together on on something like Pumping Blood. I mean, you think about Pumping Blood and you think about like the gift, like the the 
arcs of blood in the sunshine or whatever. The arcs of blood in this song are the blood coming out of Lulu. It's also blood pumping into a cock. Like this is all of that at once from any and all perspectives simultaneously. These are favorite subjects of Mr. Lou Reed by this point. You know, it, it should not be anything that, sh- like, I, I think the way that it is presented and, and the, uh, honestly, the sheer length of it uh, is, is kind of unprecedented and awe-inspiring. Yeah, well, that's what they say is, oh, it's tedious. It's like, maybe it's supposed to be tedious. Well, yeah, know? exactly. That's what, I'm, that's what I said earlier, right, is, is the way that the music is sequenced and put together. Like, it, it's, it's all here for a reason, man. And, and, and like, you got to get to the end of it, I think, before you can really make a total, uh, a total statement about it. You know, the, the, these reviews that are just, like, picking nits with individual songs. Oh, pumping blood is repetitive or whatever. Or, oh, uh, you know, it takes too long to get to Ice Honey. Like, that you're missing the forest for the trees, brother. Like this is this is so much more than just song after song after song. The way that you might expect, you know, a ten song, forty minute LP to uh, you know have been created in the first place. This is we're, we're operating on 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 several levels beyond that kind of approach to music making here. It's almost hard to call this like a rock record. You know, you you almost want to think of this as a totally different genre. It's an opera. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is a song that if it wasn't too long and didn't feel a little bit uh, painful, wouldn't achieve as much as it does. It's a song about pain of being violated. Why would you expect it to be a pleasant thing? Like You have to allow that this record is not working on the rules of any other record. It's working on the rules of its own thematic track and three songs in there's not a missed beat on what it's trying to do and achieving. Uh, one other note, Lou calls out, Lou says, come on, James. And this, come on, yeah, James, which is a great, a great moment, just purely on its face without reading, you know, into any deeper on a, on a thematic level. But I think that, goes even further right to 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 uh, illustrating this record as not just a collection of songs made in a studio and presented as a rock record but as something else as as these players together conjuring this world metallica operating as this orchestra lou as a conductor bringing this to life you know realizing it right in front of your face on on the record there's no better example of the drama of the attempt which I really feel like it's the thing that I love in music. With Lou Reed, this is an amping up and an acceleration and a presentation of this thing that has always been essentially Lou Reed. Of He doesn't want it to be like sanded and manicured. He just wants to show you that there's something he's getting to. That brief moment of, come on. That's not the only one on the record, too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 operating on multiple different levels at once. If you're going to come to this record and just say it's icky to me, it's like, come on, dog. Wag on my ass like a dog prostitute, coagulating heart, pumping blood. Come on, James.
curtsy while you yell out mercy. We grow apart. Would you rip and cut me? Use a knife on me. He shocked at the boldness, the coldness of this little heart. Tied up in leather, would you take the measure of the blood that I pump and the manic confusion? blood and then mistress dread doesn't really feel like a next song as much as like a next phase exactly just a next movement right it it segues seamlessly this is maybe just the other perspective and i I think that the response to the record is understandable because it's like asking someone what's your deepest darkest secret it's like okay that's crazy to ask someone. Like, you can't really expect them to just go there. What you have here is a record that actually just is going there. Trigger warning. This record. <laughs> get it, snowflakes. Get out of here. <laughs> it is funny to me that metalheads have such a problem with it, because it's like, okay, you love this when it's an aesthetic of doom and violence and blood and gore. But, like, are you actually prepared to get into what that means? Right. It's more about the presentation than it is about the actual, you know, material of which it is constituted. Because you understand every word of what he says on this record. It's about what it's about. And it's not always going to be the time to listen to that. You don't just want to watch Irreversible. You don't want to watch Antichrist every day. Like, there are works of art that are just demanding yeah no i've been thinking about that a little bit actually and and i think mr shred is like kind of the moment that metallica comes to the forefront on this record and i was i was going to draw an analogy to something like episode eight right of of twin Peaks season three which you know for people who haven't seen it that doesn't mean anything to you but for anyone who has seen it you remember episode eight where you just you sit there and you just watch in awe for the whole thing and just you know wonder to yourself oh my God, is this really what this is? Or are they doing this? And the answer, of course, is yes. Some of the comments or commentary or criticisms of this record were based on Lou and the band sounding at odds with one another or kind of apart from one another, like they're doing two different things within the same song. In general, I don't really buy into that criticism or that that take even, but Mr. Stred, I think, is where that, like, I, I can see that here. This is Metallica just tapping into, like, early days, hardcore thrash type of shit. And Lou is just, <laughs> Lou is just Lewin, you know, on top of all of that. And you can stick with him or not. Um, but that's what I dig about this, you know, is, is really, like, kind of highlighting the dichotomy, the contrast between who wrote all of these songs and, and whose brain we're kind of getting a peek into and and all of the music makers behind him, right? Because I think Lou did play a little bit of music on this record, you know, guitar here and there. But in general, this is very much Metallica music. Um, Well, it's metal as a genre being introduced at the same time as Lou is introducing a lyrical approach that's new for him. Like, you actually do have two novel things happening at once. And that's why I bristle at like the, the criticisms of it it's not just like Lou Reed made a record with a new sound. There's no part of this that's connected to the past except for the themes. Right. And he's not trying to fit into 
Metallica's world. You know, the expectations that someone might have coming to a Metallica record, just the same as Metallica's not doing the same to a Lou Reed. Remember, the last Lou Reed rock record we had at this point was Ecstasy. This doesn't sound anything like ecstasy from a musical level. So neither one of them is compromising with the expectations of the audience for the other party there. Mistress Dread is one of a few moments on this record where they, just through the force of their own music, come to the forefront and reassert themselves as like, hey, we're here. We are, yeah. We're here, exactly. We're just as much of a part of this as Lou is himself. Because I got I mean, I got to give them credit. They were willing to go along with this whole thing. They were willing to soften themselves for so much of this to kind of get in touch with their feminine side in a way. Like this record represents in some way a really unique meeting and kind of a reconciliation with the masculine and feminine in rock music, which has always existed in Lou's career and his life. Like every foray into the glam, androgyny, and often antagonistically non-straight way that he presents himself. And you then have Metallica, who are maybe the most like masculine, macho band of all time. And Lou is kind of like casting them as ostensibly female and gay characters at any given turn of this album and they're right there with it i mean who knows how much they understood you know about the actual lyrical content as lou understood it or the lulu plays but they are on board to do it no matter what they they trust lou in this whole process and i think that's because the intensity the visceral power of the material transcends traditional ideas of gender yes Uh, and and inspired by a series of plays the lulu plays which are notoriously debated and fought over you know some people seeing them as like proto-feminist and others seeing the exact opposite you know your mileage may vary but i think that's all in there about something like uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller as one of the best works of art about the same principle. Mm. The, Great picture. What, what a picture. picture. Really, that's a movie that to me is about the same kinds of themes of like this masculine uh, swaggering character being belittled and eventually ruined 
by a feminine character who has more masculine power than he does. And the confusion and tragedy that exists because of this Freaky Friday soul swapping that is just constantly going on of like the depth of that incongruity on Mistress Dread, it's like you can't even tell who it's from the point of view of really like the character that's uh, submitting to this treatment is doing it in this way that itself is aggressive and scary. <laughs> so who is Mistress Dread? I mean, it might be Jack the Ripper and it might be the opposite. Like Jack's in his corset. Jane is in her vest, if you will. It's all up in the air, but the violence of all of it is being given a voice by the music and the lyrics. Yeah, who is who is speaking here, I think, is less uh, of a concern on, on this particular song to me. You know, it could be anyone. It probably is Lulu, you know, whatever, but that doesn't really even mean too much or, or matter too much. Uh, for me, this is really just a... Like I said, like a, a just a, a shock and awe. Like look at what look at what is is happening uh, with just some extraordinary, beautiful poetry from Mister Lou Reed here. Tie me with the scarf and jewels. Put a bloody gag to my teeth. I beg you to degrade me. Is there waste that I could eat? Mm. I'm a secret lover. I'm your little girl. Please spit into my mouth. I'm forever in your swirl. You are heartless, and I love that. You have no use of me, but I open the sticky legs and then insert a fist and arm some lost appendage. Please don't make me happen. You are my Goliath. You are my Goliath. And I am this You are my Goliath, and I am Mistress Dread. Insert a fist and arm some lost appendage. I do think about the gift, the song and short story, as kind of a thematic prerequisite for a lot of this. When you referenced the gift earlier, I, th- I, I, the first thing that I flashed to was a gift instead of the gift. No, a not gift a gift from to Coney Island. A gift to the <laughs> women very, of this world. Very different. <laughs> yes, somewhat different. But you know, in the song "The Gift," the short story, the final caresses of sexual oblivion. Like he's been interested in writing this kind of stuff since the beginning. Unfortunately for the listener. You're not just hearing about it. You're like in it. You are. This is like in a hentai, like the, the like the panels that are like a shot of like literally like the dick in the pussy. Like this is just like you don't even want to see. It looks like a colonoscopy. This is like it's fully crossed over into kind of a grotesque. 
And that's what you're dealing with here. So like, stop talking about this. Like it's as, oh, is it a good song? Like it's icky. (laughs) Oh, it's icky. (laughs) Amen, brother. How are we doing out there, folks? We got something a little easier coming up. Banger. Iced Honey is the next song in a brilliant and merciful sequencing choice. The last two tracks, like the last 20 minutes, have been this like prolonged fisting porno. And then Iced Honey is like, it steps back and it, it talks about what basically is the same thing as the song ecstasy talks about like the elusive nature of pleasure ice honey is the moment to me that the 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 spotlight kind of fades from the characters in this opera uh and refocuses on lou reed and metallica here and and from a lyrical basis absolutely lou writing personally about himself um you know i'm I'm sure that if you are a lulu expert there's plenty of shit in here that connects to the actual you know material from the play itself but to me i i i for whatever reason like i i I consider songs like the gift or mistress dread to be you know spoken through the guise of other characters and here i feel like i'm listening to lou reed again um all of a sudden and and i think sequencing wise like you just said right like that's exactly like that's deliberate that's on purpose here uh it's a short song ice honey i think it's probably the catchiest song on the record it's really just kind of a banger great riff yeah as just a lou reed rock song it's i think definitely undersung it's fantastic it's going gonna appear on the uh the lou reed portion of the jokerman 100 i'll just uh, spoil that right now the way that it sounds right the band behind it that's metallica it's always going to be metallica headfield singing that's going to be headfield but like this is something that I think has very clear musical DNA, musical roots in something from Ecstasy, I think very clearly, uh, or even Blue, Blue Mask, Mask, Legendary Hearts or something, you know? Yeah, like, I was listening to Blue Mask, just the title track, and then I queued up Ice Tiny after and it just worked like a charm. Yeah, run from Blue Mask into this, into Waves of Fear, right? Like that's a very smooth, seamless three song, like sweet right Ooh, there. Mud on separated by 30 years but it's that's you know that, that's what we've been saying all along like this this dna has been there whether or not it's legible or, or clearly identifiable upon first listen it's down there at a cellular level <laughs> Tricks to make 
My favorite part of the song, and maybe my favorite part of the record, is "And Me." Oh, I've always so been great. this way, not, not by, by choice. choice. You just sounded like Nashville skyline Dylan voice, <laughs> not by choice. Just this way, just this way. Like that. That section is just so. Uh, you know, you're already kind of taken out of the immediacy of that brutal last two tracks yeah but at that point when he says and me i've always been this way it's a little bit like the moment on on gp uh the greatest song by death grips uh (laughs) where he says his own name it feels very candid i i i just i really value ice honey for the moment for the the brief kind of moment where you come up you know, from from beneath the waves here and, and surface and remember and realize at the end of the day, oh, this is this is a rock record. Yes. Well, we love those types of songs and we also love those types of records. And also interesting that the song that is about not having honey, the absence of it, it sounds sweet to hear. Yeah, it is a bit of sweetness. Right. Exactly. It, it's it's I think it's a very uh, uh it's an essential sequencing choice here. It, it absolutely needs to belong here. Cause I mean, there is no, there is no getting around it. Blue is a long race. This is a slog of a record. <laughs> like, even if you like it, even if you love it, which both of us do, it take like, it takes time and, and it, it, it beats you into the fucking ground again and again over the course of 90 minutes here with songs that are long as hell and many of which kind of lock in on an idea, a musical idea, and then just ride that for the whole span of time. Not every song by any means, but it's an overwhelming experience. Deliberately so. That's all part of it. You know, again, that, that's not a negative, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, comment there. You know, the New York album, I was at a record store today and I looked at the back of New York and it says this is meant to be listened to as you would you know, a, a, a book or a movie, like just all yeah. the way through. You can just assume, I mean, if you didn't, here I am telling you like uh, two hours into our podcast that that's how you should approach this album. Yeah, by the time you get to New York, every Lou Reed record needs to be listened to as a novel or as a movie, right? You know, one following, one track following the other in this greater kind of story or sequence, maybe with the exception of Twilight, but not even really, but... Uh, you know, Magic and Loss and Ecstasy and The Raven, certainly, that's all, and those are narratives right there. And so Lulu is kind of the ultimate narrative. Um, and, and yet, you know, you, need, you do need a little bit of, you need a little bit of honey. And that's what Ice Honey is for me, I think. Like, this is, this is a moment that I really kind of, me personally, I kind of almost disconnect from it on a lyrical level and just kind of like say, hell yeah, man just on a purely like enjoyable lizard brain level. I think iced honey does it for me. Same. Not enough people uh, will say this, you know, there's a certain song on here that gets a lot of love. Oh yeah. But which almost like, yeah, we'll get to it to, to, to a degree. That's a bit like too much. Too, yeah. I mean, just not get, that that song doesn't deserve all that love. It's just some of that love should go to the other songs. Also. Yeah. And, and iced honey gets like lost in the shuffle and it, really shouldn't because it's 
it's really a a handhold like you it's Lou reaching out to you halfway through being like you still with me yeah I mean he's saying without saying it as much as he can hang in there don't give up on this like like please understand I have to do it this way I've been drinking absinthe. Jesus, uh, I I would be gone if I had been on that the whole time here. I made an absinthe martini, and now I'm just drinking absinthe and water. Well, <laughs> pace yourself a little bit here. We've got, we've got some distance yet to go. I'm method podcasting. We're into it now. Yeah. <laughs> the next 30 minutes of this record we've only gotten through the first 30 minutes of this record uh this is really the the i think this is the mountain that you need to climb on lulu are, are these next three songs here yeah and i just want to say i don't know about you but many records have this kind of phenomenon like there is a a lag or a, a peak that you have to mount and yeah, have, peak not as in like a high point, like most exciting, like best the peak kind of you thing, see from a distance, like you're right, like, oh, literally fuck. something you need to climb up, or as the case may be, a, a hole that you have to repel down. Ugh. That's maybe more the case here, but I do genuinely believe, after having listened to this record many times, that there is not a moment on this record that is a genuine lag. There is not actually like dead points. What there are are things that are just more or less difficult, but it's not actually what people say. Like what people have said is that like it's redundant. I don't think that that's the case. I think if you've gotten this far in the record and you don't understand that the tedium and difficulty of that tedium is kind of part of the 
experience. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I think calling it tedious, that's fine. Right. But at the same time, you need to understand that that's a deliberate decision. Yeah. It's like there's slow cinema. Like, you know, there's movies like, like Satan Tango or like any, any Bellatar film you know, where it's like a scene goes on for 40 minutes and barely anything happens. That's not devoid of meaning or purpose. Like that is just an ask of you and you can't expect an easy out. You, you were given <laughs> iced honey, like protein and carbs to get you through the rest of the marathon. It's your kind bar here in the middle of Lulu and you've got a big steak dinner waiting for you at the, at the finish line. But for now you've got 250 calories of almonds and granola and caramel. You get to do whatever you want at the finish line. You can jerk off, you can uh, have a Reese's cup, you can mm-hmm. put a hat on. It's all your favorite things to do. In the meantime, you're going to be running on broken legs. <laughs> Oof. Cheat on me is, is cheat on me. You know, <laughs> well, what is this this song doing thematically here? I mean, after Ice Tunny, a song about the sort of futility, like stepping back and talking about the futility of well, desire itself. I can't get no satisfaction. We're just getting further and further entangled into the mess of what that implies. On this and the next tracks after it. I think this is the point at which he's like moving beyond these characters, this this time and, and era and world that he's conjured at the beginning of this record. Very effectively conjured, I think, uh, over those first four songs, really, I think. Uh, but then Iced Honey as this, you know, little, little sweetie treaty here in the middle. And then from here on out, I think it's really, this is, this is, this is a Lou, re- like just Lou, Lou, writing about Lou, writing about his own thoughts and feelings and expressions. And sure, certainly it comes from uh, uh, an appreciation for the Lulu material and, and intersects with some characters and events there without question. But to me, as someone who knows a hell of a lot more about Lou Reed and, you know, his interests and his personal story than I do about the Lulu plays or whatever, like this is, from here on out, it's such an effective, uh, and and uh, ultimately kind of like um, revealing exploration of who the man was, where he was at this moment in time, and kind of how everything had stacked up on itself here at the very end, but what ended up becoming the very end for him. Cheat on me specifically, I think, ties directly back to Mad, Mad from Ecstasy, exactly, which we talked about, you know, quite a bit when we when we covered that record, one of the great songs on Ecstasy, one of the great songs in general. This song is approaching that same subject from a different, like it's, it's approaching that subject with a different kind of attack plan and, and putting it across in a different way. But I think whatever little nook, whatever corner cranny of his brain was driving him to write something like mad i think that that's here too well that's the thing that i would say is that mad is to cheat on me as mistress dread is to iced honey like iced honey is a sort of reflective song upon what you have on like pumping blood and mistress dread it's a moment of stepping backward and then actually posing a question of why does the character in Mad do that? I mean, Mad is sort of an outrageous song 
and a profound song because it fearlessly approaches this reality of these bass, you know it's bad while you're feeling it, you know it's bad while you're thinking it type things. And it just says them and it just acknowledges their existence. But Cheat On Me is like, why am I doing this? It doesn't offer any solution, but it acknowledges that there's a more complicated story behind those impulses and these characters as people. It's 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 definitely a song that demands some introspection. I I think the length of it in particular is like second longest song uh, on the record. It beats Dragon by a few seconds, and I think that's again that's deliberate. There's a reason that that is the case. They, they could have very easily lopped sixty seventy percent of this song off and gotten the idea across, uh, but that's not that's not the point here. That's not what they're 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 trying to do. Is comparing it to Mad or thinking about it along the lines of Mad, you know, Mad is is or endlessly jealous. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, endlessly. Yeah, maybe that's a whole continuum. There is like endlessly jealous is kind of like the the funny winky like uh, you know uh, ribbon your buddy type of uh, 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 jokey approach. Mad though, I, I think is attacking this subject and at the same time is sort of a portrait of just a dirtbag, like piece of shit, you know, human being. And Cheat on Me is a more straight faced, like deadly serious take on on the same subject, which just asks this question again and again and again and again and again. And like this absolutely is tedious at certain points, but it's Deliberately so. Like, that's exactly the point, right? Rumination. Exactly. Having this thing that you can't stop thinking about. can't stop it. You wake up and you're thinking about it and you go to sleep and you're thinking about it and you're walking down the street and it's just like, it's like a sickness. It's a disease. You just can't remove yourself from it. That's what the experience of listening to this song simulates, emulates, and it's terribly effective at that. 
There are moments where the music of this doesn't do anything that Metallica or Lou Reed have ever done, where it has this um, ambient quality, um, ambient's the wrong word, but the this palette that is purely um, sort of spectral and ethereal, the introductions to both those songs kind of exist in this sort of half-existence ghost world. Also, like, Little Dog and Frustration, the beginning of Frustration and the beginning of Junior Dad and the beginning of Dragon, all the songs from this point on involve a kind of instrumentation, at least in part, that is like the, I think to me it represents like the beginning of a thought and then it blossoms or sort of decays as the case may be into the full fledged thing, but there is this sort of soft and um, wavering quivering instrumentation that shouldn't be glossed over. And like, I feel like in every review I've read that's negative of the record, there's no mention of the delicacy that's achieved on those moments. And it really does exist, and it's attempted and succeeds as be, uh, being subtle. Yeah, I think he was after a sense of of drama, of of you know drama across the whole record. I, I keep saying that again and again, but within each song as well, a, a sense of becoming, of 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 something unfolding and happening, unfolding. and growing and changing. And that's what you get at the beginning of a lot of these songs, or you know, f- with the progression from the beginning to the end of a lot of these songs. You know, they they kind of grow and bloom naturally, messily. Uh, true to their own nature, I, I would say, uh, and then ultimately kind of go off in whatever direction they end up going off in. But yeah, I mean, Cheat On Me is, this is, this is, it's a climb, man. Why do I cheat on thee? Why do I cheat on me? Definitely in line with Lou Reed's penchant for fixation on unutterable emotions and thoughts in these songs. That's kind of the cathartic element of them. It's like just this acknowledgement that's sort of a release to listen to of like, yeah, these feelings exist, you know, and and sort of like postpartum depression, like things as intimate and dark as this, you know, exist. And to actually address them and talk about them, that's Lou Reed's real gift as an artist to the listener. He approaches things that we all know are there and don't want to necessarily address and he couches them within a structure that shows they're there, they're real, they don't define what's most important, but they are things that you have to deal with. Why do I cheat on me? And you go back to Brandenburg Gate and you think about, I just want to see, I want to give life a whirl, I want to know what's there. Girls just want to have fun. Girls just want to have fun is what <laughs> Lulu is about. <laughs> and it's also about the consequences. Uh. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my head through a wall if we, if we keep talking about cheat on me. Well, you are going to love the next song. Yeah, there's it, here's a great uh, uh, antidote to uh, we're gonna come up here. Uh, frustration. frustration. This is where the drama aspect just like works 
The stakes keep getting raised. The tension keeps building. Having a good time here. Frustration in my lexicon of hate. And, and, and this, I think, is, um, is where, again, Lou's own experience and his own personal journey or whatever, like, is coming back to the forefront here. I, 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 you know, we, we read a lot in uh, The Art of the Straight Line last year, you know, the, the book about Lou undertaking Tai Chi and pursuing that whole aspect of his life, that whole project in his world, uh, you know, as sort of a remedy for a lot of the damage that he had done to himself, you know, uh, his organs, his liver, obviously, which ended up ultimately killing him, uh, but also just like his actual like muscles and, and musculature and, and, you know, physical build. Um, you know, you hear time and again in that book about like the, the pain that he lived with and Tai Chi is this remedy for, for that pain, mind over matter approach to it, instead of just popping pills all the time. And for me, that comes through, or that shines through, that concept shines through really clearly in this song with that verse here that you get a couple times. I feel the pain creep up my leg, blood runs from my nose, I puke my guts out at your feet. You're more man than I. Blood drips from my nose, waves, waves of, fear. of fear. Yeah, and that, that seems so clearly like an, like a, an experience, a, a thought dream that Lou himself had many times, you know, personally. And so he's exploring it, I think, through this lens of plausible deniability perhaps on Lulu and maybe those words belong to some character in these plays or whatever but like to me and and here again like this record really being as rewarding as possible for anyone who has has followed along from the very beginning like that that line that sequence this song altogether hits so much harder for me knowing everything that I do about the guy at this point this is a song that introduces, and it's further explored till the last drop, the idea of impotence and frailty. And regardless of his personal story, we all get old. And he's talking about, I don't have the strength I once had, and I, I drop to my knees in a second to salivate in your thighs, but all I do is fall over. <laughs> Uh, so as much as it's about actual physical aging, I, I think it's about a f- mental a- uh, frailty or fragility. And in this particular case, a very distinctly male fragility and the fear of that, the fear of obsolescence. And he's really going down into the pits on this one and on the next. And I think you're right that he is mining his personal experience here and the way that he feels physically and emotionally. And when you listen to this song, you can't ignore that it's going into what the nature of fear of aging really is and that it's not just about physical frailty. It's about the fear of being erased. And yeah, the song seems to be about a character that is pining after uh, another in a situation of unrequited love, but I think it's bigger than that. I think this song is about the fear of abandonment by someone who you were counting on would love you, and it's about the fear of your body betraying you, and this accompanying rage.
lexicon of hate, I see you with your portraiture. Does he love you? Does he love you too? The brush strokes kiss your breasts and toes. I cry icicles in my stein. The heartbeat flutter with an abnormal rhythm. The pain shoots through my body, a sword between my thighs. I wish that I could kill you, but I do love your eyes. I wonder sometimes if this record would have been more understood or warmly received or something if it had come out like five years later, like if if, if it had come out in, like in the Trump era, basically, because I, I feel like the 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 fury and the anger that define this record, like that just was not that was not in like 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 being mad and furious and angry and in the obama era yeah aware of your own mortality and just like the the fading the dimming of the future before your very eyes that was not the defining cultural spirit in the year 2011 and obviously obviously has been maybe a little bit too much over the last however many years at this point but uh it it really feels almost predictive, I think. And not that Lou was aware of the way that the world was going to uh, go on to evolve over the following years, but it, uh, it, it feels much more of a piece, more in tune with our cultural moment today and over the last however long, I think, than it did at that, at that moment in time. And, you know, Lou was feeling that shit himself personally because, like, his life was ending, right? Like, this, this record came out less than two years before he was going to pass. And, uh, you know, by this moment in time, he'd really started to, I think from what I've, I understand, you know, started to feel the effects of, you know, his declining physical health. Um, and so that sense can't help but be present in this record all the way through from beginning to end. I feel much more prepared for and in tune with everything that's happening uh, in Lulo at this moment in time with the benefit or the benefit, that's the wrong word, you know, with whatever I've gone through in the years since this record came out than I did at that, you know, at that time. At any given point in history, people are going through this, this exact feeling, these types of dire emotional states. It's why Lou Reed wanted to make an album about Edgar Allan Poe. It's like his focus as a writer is about these climaxes of desperation Frustration, I just want to note, has the lyrics about, I want so much to hurt you. I want so much to hurt you. Marry me. I, I want, want you, you as, as my, my wife. wife. And don't forget spermless like to a girl. To be dry and spermless <laughs> like a girl. You and me both, Lou. <laughs> to be dry and spermless. Oh, also, just uh, I cry icicles in my stein. Icicles Hell in yeah. my stein. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. One of the greatest lyrics on the whole thing, yeah. Um, uh, yes, little dog. Little dog. I I feel I feel like this is a direct reference to the painting, the Goya painting. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Mm, no. If you search Goya dog, you'll see the uh, very famous painting of Goya's uh, little dog. Yeah, it's a little dog. Man, yeah, that's cute. It's a pathetic little dog. No, that's rude. No it, dog is pathetic. I'm a cat person. You're a dog person. That's true. I got a dog. My sweet girl. 
Lou Reed, also a dog person, worth noting. Very true, and Laurie Anderson, dog person. That's uh, right. Laurie Anderson, I think, on her album, Heart of a Dog, uh, Heart of a Dog, talks about this very painting, uh, Goya's painting of this dog, sort of barely popping out of a kind of dune or a barrier of some t- type. Couch. Most of the painting is just this kind of blotchy expanse. This pathetic sort of malnourished looking dog blindly staring up with a cataracted looking eye into this desolate expanse. That's, I'm pretty sure, like kind of the, at least to me, it's absolutely the mood of this piece. And I think that the the song is um, as good a soundtrack to that painting as ever existed. Pathetic little dog. The little man follows his nose, counts his fingers, and his toes. Ugh. It makes me sad. This one really gets to me. Yes, I, I think this one makes all men sad. who can't get in Morning at the bedside Morning from each limb Little dog who can't get in Can only cry but has got his spot and elbowed him away listen to him barking listen to him call little dog don't have much at all The, the bigger dog has got his spot and elbowed him away. That's the that's the song to me. That's that's the crux of this right here. You know, it's it is a it's a dog eat dog world is a trite phrase at well, this point. Dog in time, eat dog right? is what but, this song's about. But that's exactly exactly right right. The bigger dog has got his spot. <laughs> <laughs> this song is about dog eating dog. 
the little dog is Waldo Jeffers from The Gift. You know he's not going to make it. And the big dog is Bill. The Yeah, exactly. And that's <laughs> always been there. And as much as the female perspective is there, you know, he's just as comfortably embodies the, and you actually are more sympathetic in the gift to Marsha and her friend. Like you kind of get what there's, because Waldo's a fucking weirdo loser, but this song is just about like acknowledging that like you might be born as that guy. Sorry. (laughs) It's just luck of the draw. (laughs) <laughs> you're really, you're really emphasizing the uh, the incel energy of this record right now. <laughs> but it blasts you in the face with it. I mean, the incel energy of this record is like half of the thing. I think that is definitely uh, part of it, and I think that's also you know to to bring Metallica back into this conversation a little bit. Part of what makes that pairing so brilliant, right, is the fact that you know Metallica is typically thought of as like such a macho like cishet white guy like you know we are yeah we are we are fucking badasses with our our black outfits and our big muscle tees and like just you know playing our guitars down around our dicks and stuff and so pairing that sound and that energy that that everything that comes along with that with the, with this record which really is a examination of and deconstruction of you know uh the, just all of the the deepest darkest fears of male impotence um, I, I don't, I don't know to what extent Lou was conscious of that going into, but I have to imagine that at some point that kind of, you know, some light in there went off at some point and he was like, you know, this is, <laughs> this is perfect. I don't know. It's, it's just appropriate. It's like a, such a, such a thematically uh, powerful kind of fusion of form and message. Maybe it's a stretch, but I, I've thought of it as almost being kind of like pop art a la Warhol. It's like the biggest brand name in rock music. Metallica is kind of like the Campbell's soup of rock bands. And they're recontextualized in a way that doesn't deny what they are. It actually kind of confirms what that thing is. But it also suggests as deeply as you can that there's another way to look at it. If it had been done with any other band, it just wouldn't be what it is people who would who would whine about Metallica's presence on this record and and want him to have made this album with another set of players or whatever that sounds different it's like sure sure he could have done that did you read the all music review where it was like I didn't know well it was funny because it it was kind of like if I had written it when I first heard the record like it said like well maybe he could have done this with shellac or the Jesus lizard like right honestly great choices like that would have been sick i'm sure that would have been great and you know just as except yeah but, but it wouldn't have been this record with metallica and that is such a big part of this this record yeah right the record wouldn't be what it is if it was done within a band's comfort zone you can sense them stretching themselves on here and if it was with a group that could just do this in their sleep you know, just knock out a tasteful post-rock soundtrack for Lou Reed. It just, it, Metallica brings such a loaded series of associations to this music just by virtue of them being Metallica. And there isn't any other band that is Metallica that could do that, you know, as good as this record with Shellac might be. Yes. Although not for nothing, I would pay 
cold hard cash to hear that. Tell me what it is you want. Tell me what it is you want. Slip your shit in hand. Follow me around. Pathetic little dog. Pathetic little dog. Pathetic little dog. Dragon is the next song. Dragon. Dragon. I love it. You love it. I was watching. I, Dragon's my favorite song on this record, besides wow. obviously everyone's favorite song on this record. Um, Why is Dragon your favorite song on this record? It rocks, man. I was, I was just going to say, there's this, there's this great uh, series of videos that you can find on YouTube. I was, I was watching before uh, you know, we recorded you know, in, the, in the run-up to all this. Lou and the band and Metallica uh, did a brief little like European jaunt after the record came out. They played just, I don't know, three, four, five shows, something like that. And, and within that span of things, they played some sort of weird, like, like German MTV type thing and not MTV necessarily, but like basically the German equivalent of that. And, and they played, you know, three or four songs uh, from, from Lulu and uh and sound great look great it's it's a great performance great series of performances and it also there's also there's also this interview with this like swoopy haircut talk about you know starbucks soy hipster it's that guy but you know he's from nuremberg or whatever and he's you know speaking english with a <laughs> dolty german accent it's hilarious but one of his questions it is he's a completely just beyond out of his depth completely mismatched for this conversation but one of his questions to Lou is like uh, dra- the song Dragon. Why is it called? Why is it called Dragon? And Lou's just looking at him, and he's like, I, I forget exactly what he says. I, I wish I could quote it here uh, uh, verbatim, but he's like, it-, it comes down to the song is called Dragon because it fucking rocks and it feels like a dragon and it sounds like a dragon, and that is exactly right. It's like this is the final moment of them all coming together and unleashing the 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 Godzilla breath across the entire mm-hmm. record you know that that moment when Godzilla finally opens his mouth and does the scream and you see the nuclear fire you know uh, uh, spread out across Tokyo that's that's dragon on this record except and, it's Berlin <laughs> yeah right yeah exactly uh and and coming uh, once again to, to harp on this uh, yet again coming where it does on this record after this Stretch, man. Cheat on me, frustration, little dog. Long songs. I just want to point out that frustration we didn't mention has a really great interpolation of Ice Honey. The chords in Ice Honey. Mm-hmm, There's mm-hmm. points in it where it references that. Another knock against this myth that this record has no like continuum of uh, uh, musical ideas. Like that, th- that really is. One of the greatest things about frustration is that it, yeah, it it brings up this motif of the iced honey riffs and um, plays with them really effectively. Just wanted to point that out while we're on the topic. Thank you for making thank you for making this episode even longer than it already is. <laughs> dragon, dragon, man, just listen to it. 
This is this is so hardcore, so heavy. This is this is for for people who are complaining about this record about uh, Lou Reed Metallica. It doesn't make sense together. They're they're doing two different things. They don't work together. Like this absolutely puts to bed beyond any shadow of a doubt any kind of statement along those lines. Like this, I don't I don't understand how you can listen to this song and not have it just thrill you. This combination from the the beginning, like three or four minute kind of searching, wandering, uh, 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 atmospheric kind of intro where Lou is just like spitting some cutting lines. You don't actually care. Love for you is no beginning. You're not really there. Hallucination. The way he, he comes back to hallucination again and again in this, like the, the strength of the power of that voice, you know, which sounds aged and at the end of its rope, like it can barely even continue. Floors me every time. you think you're so special that there's no law meant for you you come and go like the goddess you are we're mere mortals below fingertips run through your hair we are mere mortals below Dragon is kind of the ultimate consequence of what you have in the view. It's like the initial attraction, the magnet that attracts and repels you results in dragon, which is kind of like this horde of men who are victims of their own desire. And it's also about the character of Lulu, who is a kind of dragon in her own right. As she lords over them unrepentantly as their master, it's like this final showdown, this personification of your fear and desire is being stared down, like staring death in the face. Are meant to be peons. Are meant to be servants Are meant to be dismissible objects One fucks with One fucks with Poor pitiful creature Creature, the 
red star of idiocy and idiot's idiocy. The redundancy of that, but the 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 fact that he feels the need to phrase it that way and idiot's idiocy, it's like, man, hell yeah. To be redundant in that way is the redundancy and hopelessness of the emotional state of the character. Like that is a good <laughs> lyric. It's great. Exactly. It's, it's the only way, like, you know, you, there's the idea of no two words are actual synonyms, right? No two words actually mean the same thing. The only way to actually really emphasize that phrase is just to repeat it again right after it. And idiot's idiocy. It's like anti-poetry on its face that actually is, you know, kind of the pure essence of poetry, if you really think about it. But just like calling it dragon, so you come to this song with the idea of dragon in your head, and then you hear this, it's like... <laughs> and yet, it's also the most romantic thing possible, because this song is pure romance. It reminds me a little bit of that quote, a uh, great quote from Lacan, which is, love is giving something you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. Hmm. And I've also been thinking about Cronenberg and Crash. He's always said, which I think a lot of critics miss, is that he says this is one of his most, it's his most romantic film. Right. And once you hear him say that and then you watch the ending where it's like, it seems so desolate and hopeless and horrible that they're like, maybe next time that we'll both die together. That is the romance. Like there, there is nothing more romantic. It is kind of morbid but it is this romantic idea of love as being giving up hope together and in this song the narrator is sort of realizing he has given up hope in vain and yet there's almost this sense of perverse pride in like ripping your own heart out it's living in forget it jake it's it's berlin <laughs> this is this is the whole this is the whole thing man. are we really dead now are we both dead now The final song zooms out and also zooms in at the same time. It's back to Lou. 
I think as much as the record has been, you know, a, a, a battle royale, a back and forth between the masculine and the feminine, it is, and it has been that, absolutely. It's also been a, a back and forth between this, this weird, mythic Berlin uh, world that Lou Reed has conjured, you know, with all of these, this uh, cast of characters, and, and Lou Reed himself, and, and Metallica, you know, kind of somewhere behind him. Dragon is kind of the end of that story, that back and forth there. And ends on a very satisfying note, you know, as it must, with those characters from Lulu. And now, here at the end, the last song that Lou Reed ever released on a record, it is without a doubt just we are focused on one person and one person alone. Alone. Yeah. I don't know that anyone has been more alone in a song. And yet it's addressed to this uh, other character or presence who may or may not really be there. Well, the, the, the person that has been the other, you know, one of the people in his life, maybe the person in this person's life that has been with him from the very beginning, haunting him every step of the way, something that he's been wrestling with. Or perhaps hasn't been wrestling with, has been trying to run away from or running running towards Lurie's relationship with his father is kind of a I mean I I want to avoid making any sort of uh statement about what that relationship was difficult I think you you could get away with that I mean we have reason to believe that certain things he said about his relationship with his father were exaggerated to the point of sounding really awful in a way that they actually weren't you know, things that were contradicted by his sister, uh, for example, you know, that it was his relationship wasn't that bad with them. But we can't know and we don't know what we do know is it was something he was fixated on. We know that from the evidence from Killier sons and on and families. And, you know, this is a subject that he returns to again and again throughout his entire career as a working musician from the very, very beginning until the very, very end. And Junior Dad is the ultimate kind of swan song here. It's closing the circle. That's it. This is the last song on the last record. And thematically, we are, we're back at the beginning. It's crazy. (laughs) Junior Dad is crazy. It is so immense to me and so desperately sad. And and doesn't necessarily have to be read that way. I think, you know, I, this is, this is something I think that you can't help but bring your own life and experience. There's stories about the guys from Metallica being in the studio when Lou is singing this song and weeping and, and having to rush out because they are finding themselves so affected suddenly by what they're getting here. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, con- the junior dad concept, right, which is such a weird phrase, such a like kind of kludgy phrasing. That's that's a, a conscious choice. The same way that an idiot's idiocy was, I think. Um, and 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 so at the end, right when you get to say hello to Junior Dad, the greatest disappointment, age withered him and changed him. The Junior Dad image to me, it like the, it it breaks my heart every time. As much as this record is about things that you can't escape from, I think Junior Dad is kind of the thing you confront and I think that the song is as much about accepting death 
accepting aging as it is about rejecting those things. And I think that the dad character in the song, Lou recognizing that he's become his father, a child raised by an idiot, and that idiot becomes you. Mm. That's the profundity of it, is that after this entire record that is raging back and forth between these desires for the most destructive and volatile forms of love here at the end he he wants only to be held and recognized not in a romantic way but by this father and asking to be raised up and asking to be helped pleading with this father asking weren't you supposed to be the other person the other one who knew what it was like to be a man and to have a life and asking would you help me would the effort really hurt you is it unfair to ask you to pull me up and I think that maybe that this idea of the greatest disappointment is in the end as you prepare to leave your life looking down at your body which now looks so much like your father's who you would like to be there and realizing that you have to be that for yourself It's so far beyond, so much bigger than almost anything else that could conceivably be called a rock song in the way that this can be called a quote-unquote rock song, this 19-minute you know, epic that ends on a nine-minute string drone. It's the, it's the Moby Dick of rock songs to me. It's like it, it kind of encompasses everything within it. And I'm being slightly hyperbolic there, but you know for purpose for good reason like it 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 is my favorite song on on lulu <laughs> and and it was everyone's favorite song on lulu it's worth noting and that almost kind of gr- like has kind of grinded my gears a little bit the the appreciation and love for junior dad that was there from the very beginning versus the rest of this record everyone kind of saying oh this song is really great what if the whole record was like that and it's like you know if that's your take on things you kind of miss the point of the record because it's been leading to this. It's exactly it's it it it's been working up to this all along. I mean, it's extraordinary. You could not have scripted a greater ending to a greater record to a greater career. Well, that's it. That's all, folks. <sighs> Thanks to everyone for listening. 
And thank you, Lou Reed. And thank you, Metallica. Jokerman. Oh my God.
burning on my forehead The brain that once was listening now Shoots out its tiresome message Dead father has the motor and he's driving towards an island of lost souls. Sunny, a monkey then to monkey. I will teach you meanness, fear, and blindness. No social redeeming kindness or. The mental bullet. Would you pull me by the arm up? Would you still kiss my lips? Pick up the dream is over. Get the coffee. Turn the lights on. Say hello to Junior Dad. Greatest disappointment. Age withered him and changed him into Junior Dad.